1 Corinthians chapter 3. After opening the letter in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and introducing the problem he's going to be addressing in 1, 10 to 17, Paul has spent a long time contrasting the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world, primarily through the cross of Christ in 1.18 to 2.5, and then the ministry of the Spirit in 2.6 to 2.18. In other words, all problems with unity in the church and a lack of spiritual understanding in the church come from, ultimately, a lack of focus on the cross of Jesus Christ and a trust in our own wisdom. They come from a misunderstanding of the central role of the Holy Spirit as the means to getting into keeping that focus. We tend to focus on ourselves and what we are or what we must be doing, not on Christ and what He has done as the means of our fruitfulness. Paul wants behavioral change, but he wants it to be built on theological foundations, on the foundation of the cross. With that platform established, he now turns in chapter 3 to address the divisions and factions in the church more directly. The church is one building being built upon the one foundation of Christ crucified and must not be built by men for their own purposes or it will crumble. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the cross and for Your Spirit who bears witness of Your truth to us. God, please help me preach Your Word tonight. May the sermon be clear from the text. May we all be able to hear and to understand. Would You soften our hearts that we might receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save our souls. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. So, having established the fact that change has to be built on theological foundations, the way Paul addresses the divisions and factions in the church more directly here in chapter 3 is by using two metaphors for the Corinthian believers. And one of them is a lot less flattering than the other. In Paul's first metaphor in verse 1, he calls them infants, calls them babies. Now, people generally get angry at their pastor or think he's being too harsh if he confronts them head-on with their issues, but it's hard to be more direct with church members than the Apostle Paul usually was. That's heavy. You guys are babies, he says. The Greek word for infant here is nepoi, which is where we eventually get the English word for diaper in the United States. Paul is calling them squabbling little babies who can't get what they want and are therefore characterized by jealousy and quarreling in verse 3. 
No one in a church ever wants to hear that that is how the Holy Spirit sees them in their complaining and in their constant jockeying for position, but it is the truth that must be faced. Some of the Corinthian believers claim to follow Paul, while others claim to follow Apollos in verse 4. And, and we do this. We tend to attach ourselves to certain pastors or leaders and then demand that everything conform to our guy's way of thinking. But the Apostle Paul says this kind of behavior in the church is childish. It's immature. That's why he had to start the letter by reminding them of the cross, the foundation of everything, as opposed to the practical matters he's going to get into later. Look at verse 2 there again. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready. So, Paul is asking, Paul is implying, where can believers go? What can they understand? How can they change at all when the centrality of the cross is unclear? When it's disputed? When worldly wisdom, when human wisdom is informing everything? But this behavior is more than simply infantile in verse 3. It's also fleshly and carnal. For all their pride in how spiritual they were in Corinth, they were actually as fleshly as the world. Paul is using their own language. Spiritual, of the flesh, or maybe mature versus immature, it might be in your translation. He's using that language to challenge them about their divisiveness. He's saying, you like to think you're so spiritual and mature and that you understand the deep, meaty things of God rather than depending on milk and baby food. But when you squabble and divide like this, which of those two are you really? Now, in his second metaphor, in verses 5 to 9, he changes the image from a baby to a plant, and he shifts the focus from the Corinthians to himself and Apollos now, to the leaders, the pastors. The Corinthians don't just need a lower view of themselves. They need to get a lower view of human leaders, rather than putting so much stock in them. Leaders are just servants through whom they believe, he says in verse 5. Even the Apostle Paul said, look, I was just planting a seed by preaching the gospel in Corinth in the first place. And Apollos, he came along and watered that seed by following up after me when I left town. It was God that was giving the growth. God made you grow. In verse 6. So God should get all the credit here. The Corinthian Christians have divided into factions over leaders because they credit leaders for their growth. That's worldly wisdom. They think it was far too much to do with the man and not enough to do with the Lord who does it all. Putting too much stock in human leaders shows a misunderstanding of where the growth in the church actually comes from and what it looks like. Paul paints a powerful picture here and there's plenty of application for the Western church today as well. Just like the Corinthians, we tend to elevate human leaders, human pastors, giving us way too much credit to people who are just farm laborers and servants. That's all we are. And we are as likely to see pastors and ministers in competition with one another as the Corinthians did. Who's the best at this? We think, we often think the difference in a church and whether or not it grows is made by the person, by the leader. Look at what he did. Why can't you do that? Why don't you do it the way he did it? Or look at what the new guy is doing. Shouldn't the old guy have done it that way? Or it just it's back and forth. And pastors and leaders can be to blame for this too sometimes. Leading in such a way as 
because they want people to give them the credit for the growth. And so they, they uh, conduct their ministries that way. But Paul says these pastors and leaders are all fellow workers doing the same thing in verses 8 and 9, both with each other and with God Himself. They all have the same purpose. But like the Corinthians, we can slip into thinking that the reward for Christian ministry, the proof that it's being blessed, comes in the present. Whether that's in recognition or payment, whatever it is, rather than from God and in the future, when each will receive his wages according to his labor, the Bible says in verse 8. That's when God will make it clear. And then like the Corinthians, we can see church growth as the result of a preference for a particular sort of leader or particular experience rather than as a divine miracle in which a field is scattered with gospel seed and only produces life through the powerful work of God in his own time and in his own way. But the truth that is so humbling and encouraging is in verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Anything, Paul says. You aren't anything. And we can, we'll do this. Well, yeah, but I mean, the person still has to be this, and the person still has to be that. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, says the Holy Spirit. They're nothing. If that's how you want to think about it when it comes to Making the church grow. Only God is something. We aren't anything. We take the Bible literally. Let's take that literally. I'm not anything. We pastors and leaders truly are nothing in producing growth or results. I briefly mentioned earlier that pastors themselves can be to blame for creating or encouraging these types of factions in the church by the way in which they lead. When they want people to credit them for the results. And so that causes them to lead a certain way so that they're recognized and they're thought highly of. And the fallout from that is horrible in the church. That's what Paul begins to address now in the text. The fault of the leaders in this regard. The individuals responsible for these factions within the Corinthian church haven't been challenged directly yet by Paul in 1 Corinthians. We get the sense from the first two chapters that the entire church is at fault. That everyone is causing division by aligning themselves with human leaders and everyone is boasting about them in a way that conflicts with the gospel of Christ crucified and the work of the Holy Spirit. Here in verses 10 through 15, however, that begins to change. We aren't given any names, but it becomes apparent that Paul has certain individuals in mind. There were certain leaders within the Corinthian church community that were particularly responsible for all the present chaos because of the way in which they had led. And Paul intends to warn them about what they're doing. So let's pick it up in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work 
is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul raises this issue with another metaphor. The church is described here uh, as a house. Houses are made up of all kinds of building materials. In verse 10, the skilled master builder who laid the groundwork in Corinth was Paul when he first preached the gospel to the Corinthians. Ever since then, everyone who has preached or led within the church has been building on that foundation, which, of course, is Jesus Christ in verse 11. Actually, the beautiful thing here is that building the church is a wonderful opportunity for teamwork. Paul got things started by preaching nothing but Christ crucified, and then he moves on to Ephesus to keep doing the same thing. So ideally, the other builders in Corinth, pastors and the teachers in the congregation, took over that same ministry from Paul and kept doing the same thing, nothing but Christ and him crucified. But in practice, it was easy for the new builders to mess everything up by seeking their own agenda rather than the good of the whole church, which brought division rather than unity. That's why they're in the predicament they're in. And many pastors and leaders have been doing this to Paul's foundation ever since. So in verse 10, let each one take care how he builds upon it. The church can't change the foundation. The question is what they're building on. it. The building should be shaped by the foundation, not by the agendas of the other workers. And if these workers, these pastors, do build with care on that foundation, they have nothing to worry about, regardless of what others think of them. God gives the growth. We get into trouble when we think that we cause growth. And bad pastors, leaders foment that by trying to get you to follow them because they have the key to it all. If you just follow them and do what they say, everything will work out and we'll get big and great and all these things. If they build with care on the one foundation, however, then when the fiery day of judgment comes, their work in the gospel will be shown for what it is in verses 12 to 13. Which, by the way, that's the context here. Right? Not every believer's work. That's, that's not what this text is addressing. It's addressing those who pastor the church, who build on the foundation. If they've built with gold, silver, and precious stones, that is... If they've preached Christ, loved one another, pursued unity, obeyed the Spirit, then that fire will simply reveal how well they've built on the foundation in verse 14. The kind of careful building that Paul and Apollos have done will result in a church that survives as well as a reward for the builders. But there's another option. If they've built poorly, these other workers, with wood, hay, and straw, that is, if they preach worldly wisdom rather than the cross and have led with pride and fostered division and been shaped by the spirit of the world, then the fiery judgment, the day when that comes, their ministry will be exposed as a sham and go up in flames in verse 15. It's not hard to see that today, is it? People whose pride and worldly desires have damaged or even destroyed entire churches setting them back years because they did not build on Christ but on themselves. Now, in situations like this, Paul says the builder will still be saved, but just barely, like a person rescued from a burning house. Loss will still be suffered. 
They will not receive the reward they might have. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God in a unique way as pastors. There's no doctrine of purgatory or something like that here. There is an attempt made to pull that out here that, you know, there's stages of judgment and all this. And that's, that's, this fire doesn't purge the person, does it? It tests the quality of their work. And contextually here, that's specifically their work in building the church and how they built on the foundation, which is Christ. Either revealing it, this fire, revealing that work to be good or exposing it as poor. When the time of judgment comes is when the quality of the building will be revealed. Not until the day of the Lord will the quality of the work in the eyes of God be revealed. We judge far too quickly with our eyes based on appearances, don't we? We look at the size. We look at the flash and the pizzazz and the numbers. God is saying, I have not yet revealed whether or not what they've built is good. That will come on the day through the judgment of fire for their works as pastors. We call it way too early. Either way, you're not successful. You are successful. We call it way too early. God says, I will show it on the day of that judgment. God says that judgment is mine and it's not revealed by in this life. It's not. It's not revealed by numbers and legacy. It's revealed by me and my word in judgment. God doesn't let that out in this life. Could you imagine the additional pride that we pastors would have if we could carry that around? No, if the house has been built with bricks of gold and silver and precious stones, it survives the fiery judgment. If it's been built with straw and human wisdom, it collapses. And what we as human pastors have to do, as human leaders have to do, is realize that all we have to build with is straw. We need a gift. We need God to build through us. Think of the three little pigs. Right When the wolf huffed and puffed and blew the straw house down, the piggy survived, but the house was devastated. Paul is saying to the leaders in the Corinthian church, build one building with care. On the one foundation that was laid, don't build your own building with your own stuff. We pastors are not architects. We're construction workers. We're laborers, day laborers. Our job is to build according to the blueprints. Our job is not to design our own building. It's good for pastors to remember the acronym KISS, K-I-S-S. Keep it simple, stupid. So we see what Paul has been or has been gradually turning up the heat in chapter 3. Initially, he pictured the church as a field, and Christian leaders as farm workers who will receive their wages according to their labor, in verses 5 through 9. Then he portrayed it as a house, and Christian leaders as builders who might be rewarded, but who might also suffer loss if they build carelessly, despite ultimately being saved themselves, in verses 10 to 15. In both cases there, whether you built well or poorly, The final salvation of the leader was not under threat. But now, in verses 16 to 23, it seems like that changes. So let's pick it up there. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. 
If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Right? Stop doing that, he said. Stop following men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. The church is now described as the dwelling place of God himself. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In verse 16. Temples are not ordinary buildings where you can do what you like. Temples represent sacred space. In the Old Testament, people who approached God's presence inappropriately faced immediate punishment or even death, as we've seen in our Wednesday night study on Leviticus, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, or 2 Samuel 6, 5 through 9, or 2 Chronicles 26, 16 to 21, and so on. That should affect the way we think about our local churches. And as this letter continues, Paul gives us various examples of mistreating the temple. Our response as a church to sexual sin in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. How we share the Lord's Supper together in chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. The appropriate use of spiritual gifts in 12, 1 to 31, and so on. Here in chapter 3, divisive leaders are warned, not just as careless builders of a house, but as active destroyers of a temple. And the consequences of destroying God's church are drastic in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Nobody doubts what the word destroy means. We aren't talking about varying degrees of reward anymore. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Building up the temple or building up the people of God, the church, poorly or irresponsibly causes damage to everyone. But it doesn't disqualify a person from salvation. But destroying the church, at least in the text, certainly seems to. At least that's what the text is threatening here. Right? I mean, it, it is what it is. It means what it says. How are we to understand this? Paul doesn't tell us whether the difference between damaging the church and destroying the church is the extent of the damage or the difference is in the willfulness of it, how willfully somebody did it or something else. But his language here tells us we ought to err on the side of caution and never damage or destroy the church. Now, this is the first of several passages in, passages in 1 Corinthians that warn believers away from eternal destruction, which is a very strange thing to do. There will be others, other warnings. The most severe comes later in chapter 10. And yet at the same time, Paul is already guaranteed, you remember, guaranteed that God will sustain them to the end and present them blameless on the day of Christ back in chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Later in chapter 15, verses 20 through 28, he'll reassure them again that their resurrection from the dead is certain through the resurrection of Jesus. So there's tension here in chapter 3, verse 17. Is Paul warning believers away from eternal destruction in chapters 3 and 6 and 10? Or is he assuring them in this letter that they will inherit eternal glory 
as in chapters 1 and 15. I believe it's both. Because of God's faithfulness, the resurrection of Christ, and the ministry of the Spirit, Paul is certain that the Corinthians will be preserved for future salvation. But he's also certain that some behavior like destroying the church or unrepentant sexual sin or worshiping idols will lead to eternal judgment. There's a tension there. But I think Paul knows it. I think that's what he's doing. I think Paul's warnings are the God-given way of causing the Corinthians to persevere in their faith and not do this. My mother and brothers are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Luke 8, 21. Think of a sign that says, don't touch this or you will die. Okay? Don't touch it or you will die. These passages are given to keep us from touching what will kill us. If I do touch it, I do die. But if I don't, I won't. Paul is clear. What is clear, however we understand it, is that destroying the church is a matter of life and death. Do not do it to serve your own purposes, whether you're a leader or not. And he's also confident that by the grace of God, the Corinthians will listen to this and they'll repent and they'll avoid the destruction he's talking about. There is never condemnation for a repentant believer. There is nothing but condemnation for the unrepentant. You have zero claim on assurance if you refuse to repent of your sin. Zero. And it requires here an immediate response. These Christians have to stop kidding themselves that they're wise and they've got to get back in line, the pastors in particular, with the foolishness of God that's revealed in the cross here in verses 18 to 20. Right? Don't lie to yourselves about these things. And they have to stop boasting in human leaders, whether it's Paul. Paul says, don't do that. Right? I don't want that. Or Apollos, or Kephas, Peter, or anyone else in verses 21 to 22. So these two are obviously connected. Andrew Wilson writes that boasting in leaders is something you only do if you have a worldly concept of wisdom and growth. But if your view of wisdom and growth is godly and spiritual and shaped by the cross, as Paul laid it out in chapters 1 to 2, it will lead the church towards humble unity rather than haughty infighting. Boastfulness, factionalism, pride, they're destructive to everybody. They destroy the individuals who participate in them. And left unchecked, they destroy the church as a whole. The good news, Paul says, is that they're also completely unnecessary. Right? There's no need to insist that Paul is yours. Or Apollos is mine in verse 21. Or I go with that pastor. Or well, I go with this pastor. If you are in Christ, then everything belongs to you already. Human leaders, life and death, the present and the future, the entire world. In verse 22. The victory of Jesus has made it so we need nothing but Christ crucified to build the church. We don't need to have the world's or anyone else's approval. We don't need to hang on to anything or get anything. And, and when we think that our inheritance is small and insignificant, we squabble like toddlers over every last bit of it. 
You see two little kids fight over a little toy because that's their whole world. They don't know what else they have in that moment. They just want that thing that they're holding on to that the other little one is trying to take. Paul says that's what it looks like when you fight like this. But when we lift up our eyes and see how much is ours in Christ, tribal allegiances fade into the background. Like when Abraham gave Lot the best piece of land because he knew that God would give him everything else in Genesis 13. You, you can have it. You can have the, the best piece of land. God has promised everything to me. That's why Paul ends a fairly heavy chapter with such an uplifting conclusion here. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God, verses 22 and 23. The church is one building built upon the one foundation of Christ crucified and must not be built by men for their own purposes or it will crumble. So in light of this passage tonight, how might you begin to pray for our church here in Moundville? How might your mind need to be conformed to the truth of Christ? Revealed to us in this passage. What are the areas where you might need to let go? The Spirit will give you understanding, beloved. As you seek His guidance in these things. You are His. And He's promised. So may God be with us at Mountville Baptist Church because our victory is assured. We already have everything. We're not called to be chefs, I heard a pastor say one time. Only butlers. We don't prepare the meal. We're simply called to get it to the table without messing it up. And the promise is sure. It's sure. We are not going to fail if we make the cross central on purpose in everything. We're not going to fail. There will be change. Sometimes it will hurt for all of us. I don't have a library of ideas in my head. That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about change. I'm talking about that as we grow, there will be hurt and difficulty. There will be down seasons and up seasons, just like for a normal farmer. Jesus tells us that's the way it's going to be. We have to trust Him. We don't default into our wisdom and our planning and our power when the road gets a little dark and the load gets a little heavier and more difficult to understand. We stay the course. It will be okay. He knows what He's doing. He's going to keep building His church. Just trust Him. The cross took care of everything, even our growth as a church. Just trust Him. He's not moving. He's not giving up on you. Not in your church. Not in your life. He's going to get you exactly where He wants you to be. Which at the end of all things is in His arms. So be at rest. That's going to happen. The promise is sure. Amen. Would you stand please?